We're back in Mark 13. We've come as far as verse uh, 28. The second coming has just taken place. They'll see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory, it says. And we were talking earlier, some of these topics and sessions, we're hearing a lot about the Great Reset. The uh, whole world is getting ready to reset to an ungodly agenda. God has his own reset planned. He's going to reset their reset, and their reset is going to be upset. <laughs> and we've been reading about that here in Mark 13. But in verse 28, um, Jesus says, Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see these things happening, Know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. So Jesus has been giving us events here. He's talked about things that would be happening. Uh, the answer to the question that the apostles had asked him. And at this point, he turns to the issue of timing. They've asked, when will these things be? He's given them indications of what will be going on. And he's shown these events, but um, he's talked about his coming even to the point of his appearing in the clouds of heaven. And now he begins to speak of when these things will take place. But he's not very specific. It's when you see these things happening, is what he ends up saying. What things? Those things he has spoken about, starting with deceivers coming in his name. We read about wars and rumors of wars, ethnic groups and kingdoms clashing, dispersed earthquakes, famines, troubles, pestilences, which we might better understand as pandemics, widespread gospel preaching accompanied by persecutions, betrayals, and hatred toward his disciples. Those are the things he talked about. These things, birth pains, have been common throughout history and some throughout the church age. Jesus gives one specific sign that can definitely be identified. There's only one of these. And it's the abomination of desolation that Daniel spoke about. From other references, we know that this takes place at the midpoint of the Great Tribulation, the last seven years of history, before the return of Jesus to the earth, or three and a half years before his return to the Mount of Olives. He gives a description of that tribulation. He indicates it's the worst time in history. Never a worse time before, won't be a worse time after. More details are revealed later in the book of Revelation, chapters 6 through 19, if you want to know some more details of that seven-year tribulation period within that section. But here Jesus references a parable, he says, from the fig tree in regard to the timing. He wants them to learn it, learn a lesson from the fig tree. He compares the fig tree, not a fig tree, to the events that he has said are coming. He says, when you see the fig tree beginning to turn from winter to spring, tender branches and leaves, when you see these things happening, know that it... You could put a capital I-T there. Know that it 
is even at the doors. It's near. Uh, that the context is the second coming. When you see these things happening, you know the second coming is getting close. The fig tree is just one example of a tree that buds before summer. And so this is an early warning system, the fig tree and the leaves sprouting and so forth. He says, you see that? You know that it's near even at the doors. Notice that he doesn't say to look for fruit on this fig tree. It's not time for fruit yet. We're told elsewhere, for example, in Ezekiel 36, 22 and 23, and Ezekiel 36, 32, that the Jewish people will, will return to the land in unbelief in the last days. Ezekiel 36, 22 says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. And I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst, and the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. This whole scenario is all about Israel, this last seven years, and it's a witness to the world. God's going to be fulfilling certain events that he told Israel were going to take place. And then he's going to be keeping the promises, not for their sake, for his own name's sake, and the promises that he made to the fathers. So for the sake of the fathers. Uh, Later in Ezekiel 36, verse 32, he says, Not for your sake do I do this, says the Lord God. He wants him to get the idea. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your own ways, O house of Israel. Israel is not a godly nation at this time. That's, That's yet future. But he has them there in the land, part of his plan for these last times. Uh, He's doing it here for his namesake again. He promised and he will do it. He's made promises to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and their seed concerning the everlasting kingdom. And that shall be fulfilled. And it has begun in our time. We, We see fig tree. The leaves have come out. They're sprouting. This is a warning to pay attention to the things that Jesus has spoken of here so that you know when the time is near. The Lord speaks of this day coming as a thief in the night to those who are not aware, to those who are sleeping, to those of the day. He says that day will not overtake you as a thief. If we read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul says to the Thessalonians concerning the times and the seasons, verse 1, Brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as the thief in the night. For when they say, peace and safety, and this is, you know, he says, not when you say, it's when they say, peace and safety, and that's what this whole reset's going to be about. Then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness. There's a contrast here. So that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep. And we'll talk more about this when we get to the section at the end of this chapter. When we're supposed to watch and be ready. Let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, 
and as a helmet the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath. This uh, peace and safety, sudden destruction, the church is not appointed to that. Believers are not appointed to the to the wrath of God, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. He kind of changes the um, analogy here when he says whether we wake or sleep. He's talking about whether we're alive or whether we're dead. (laughs) It's no longer spiritual uh, sleep. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another just as you also are doing. So, if these things that Jesus warns about are not happening, the time's not near. These things precede the second coming. No sign is given that will precede the rapture of the church. The rapture is a signless event. Some things could happen before the rapture, but nothing must happen before the rapture. This is why many will be sleeping, not expecting this to happen. Many will be taken by surprise. However, if you see these things happening that indicate that the second coming is near, then the rapture must be very near, since it must precede the second coming by seven plus years. The rapture does not begin the tribulation period. There's no indication that that says that. Uh, The signing of the covenant for a seven-year period will begin the seven-year countdown to the second coming. The rapture could be at the beginning of the tribulation, or it may be some time before. It could be a gap of time between the rapture and the beginning of that tribulation or when that uh, covenant is signed. I don't think it could be a long time. I think it would happen fairly soon. But it is a possibility. So, how does the fig tree figure into this scenario? What is the parable that Jesus is referring to? The budding of the fig tree. Is it just a tree, or as many interpret, the last day's nation of Israel? Now, doesn't your salvation doesn't depend on what you think about the fig tree. You know that. It's your faith in the Lord Jesus alone that concerns your salvation. You can certainly get the message by paying attention to these things, just as they paid attention to spring coming with the leaves of the fig tree sprouting forth. Um, if, you know, you don't have to think of the fig tree. You say, well, I see these things happening. So that day is near. I do, however, believe that this parable is about the nation of Israel. I think it sets a condition for the time frame in which these events indicate the near coming of the Lord. As J. Vernon McGee said, Israel is God's timepiece. That's God's clock. You can set your cosmic clock by God's dealings with Israel. They are, they're the, you know, you can look at the face of it. <laughs> you can see what time it is. But, you know, they have that doomsday clock and it's probably less than a minute to midnight now. I haven't seen it lately. <laughs> God's got his clock counting down to the kingdom age. And a lot of that involves Israel and what's going on with them. And, and this, uh, when you see the fig tree budding, I think that sets a time frame. Many of these things are general events that have occurred throughout history. Wars, earthquakes, famines, pestilences, etc. There have been those at times who have seen some current events taking place who have assumed falsely that the second coming was near. And they behaved radically. For example, setting dates. 
for his return, and they were disappointed. We discussed some of these folks, you know, a couple weeks ago. Some at the time thought that Hitler was the Antichrist. Now, he was an Antichrist, but the time period was incorrect. How could those at the time have known that the time was incorrect? Well, a greater knowledge of the Scriptures, but also the lesson of the parable of the fig tree. There was a key ingredient missing from all past periods of history. Israel was not a nation. The second coming and the prophesied events surrounding it could not happen. We've seen in this passage in Mark 13 that the abomination and desolation is there. There has to be a temple. There has to be a temple with sacrifices taking place for the um, interruption to take place. And so for that temple to be in existence, Israel would have to be in the nation, have to be in the land. Second coming can't happen without Israel being there in the land. The parable of the fig tree sets the time frame for the prophesied last day's events with the exception of the rapture of the church. There was no point in thinking the second coming was near until the prophesied conditions, for example, Israel in the land, are in place. And of course, we've seen that. This doesn't affect the imminency of Jesus' return for the church. That could still take place at any time. Even if Israel was not in the land, uh, things can happen very rapidly in our world. I think we've seen that over the past few years. So what is the parable beyond just a comparison of trees in the spring? If we look at Luke chapter 21, Jesus speaks about this uh, in this parallel passage. As we've read in Mark in verse 25 of Luke 21, he says, There will be signs in the sun and the moon and in the stars and on the earth distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring. I mean, we see a lot of distress among the nations and perplexity now. They don't know what to do. Men's hearts failing them from fear and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. He says, then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. So we saw this in Mark. He says, he says, now when these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. He says, when they start to happen, that's the time when you look up because your redemption is drawing near. And then he spoke to them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees, he says. When they are already budding, you see and know for yourselves that summer is now near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. And so the same context that we get in Mark But in verse 31, he says, when you see these things happening, the New King James says, know that the kingdom of God is near. Uh, That means when you see them come to pass, there are some uh, Bible translations that will say, when you see these things uh, have come, then you know that the kingdom of God is near. So you got two, two different things going on there. When you see these things beginning to take to happen, then you look up because your redemption draws nigh. When you see them having taken place, then the kingdom of God is near. He says your redemption draws near. 
Uh, that's something we look forward to, right? That's what the rapture is all about. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, it says, In Him, in Jesus, you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. It's when you believe that you're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. You're not... You don't get the Holy Spirit and then you believe. This is, you know, the order that it takes place. It's based upon our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that uh, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And it says he's the guarantee, New King James, some versions will say earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. And this is a a picture from uh, merchant practices in Paul's day. And the merchants would go somewhere to buy some things to bring home to, to resell. And they would put down earnest money, a guarantee. And if you've bought a house and you had to put that, you may have had to put down earnest money to show that you're serious about your offer. And, you know, if you back out, then you forfeit that earnest money. So the merchant would put down this earnest money. His goods would be sealed showing that he had purchased them, it would be his seal placed upon those goods. And then when the um, final purchase was made, then that would be the redemption of that purchased possession. And that's the picture he's giving us here of uh, our redemption. We're sealed, if we're believers now, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, and we're awaiting the pickup. We're waiting for him to come and get the possession which he has purchased, which he's put down. He's, he's shown us his seriousness about uh, purchasing us by giving us his Holy Spirit, and he sealed us with that Holy Spirit. So you have this uh, purchase money, property given in advance as a security for the rest of the money. The sealing doesn't come before we believe. And uh, David Guzik says, those who demand some assurance from God before they will believe treat God as if his word could not be trusted. We see this also in Ephesians 4.30, where Paul says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22 says, now he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God. He's anointed us with his Holy Spirit, who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee, or again, as an earnest. So that's the redemption we're talking about as we look up because our redemption is drawing near. But uh, in Luke, you notice that uh, Jesus says in verse 29, look at the fig tree and all the trees when they're already budding. So it's not just the fig tree, right? That's so. But why does he single out the fig tree? What's the significance of saying, hey, look at this tree. Well, all the trees are budding at this time. All these things are happening. But what's the significance? Why does he, you know, why does he even point out the fig tree? No, I'm asking a rhetorical question. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. It is, yeah. But we're going to 
we're going to establish that fact. Because some people say it's not, that it's, you know, just, you know, it's just a tree, you know. He's just saying, look at these things. Uh, but, uh, again, as earlier I was saying, this, his mention of the fig tree is establishing for us the time when we can be serious about the second coming of Jesus. When people could start to see and say, oh, this is the time frame in which we should be expecting things to happen that lead us to, that point to, that approach, because it's near, it's even at the doors, the second coming of Christ. So, uh, the fig tree is special. I think we have a clue in the earlier references to the fig tree, and I think Jesus is referring back to an event that took place not long before when he says the parable from the fig tree, the fig tree, in Mark chapter 11. This is just a, a day or two before. It hasn't been very long. And so when Jesus says, learn the parable from the fig tree, I think there's something specific that the apostles would remember. And that's Mark 11, 13 and 14. Seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And in response, Jesus said to it, let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And the disciples heard it. And then in verse 20, it says, Now in the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, remembering this, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. You probably didn't notice that, Jesus. <laughs> and Jesus answered and said to them, Have faith in God. For assuredly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done. He will have whatever he says. Uh, faith has to be according to God's will, of course. So whatever fig trees may mean in other contexts, the fig tree is, is undoubtedly illustrious of the house of Israel in this context. Um, in Matthew chapter 21, verses 42 and 43, Jesus says to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. So Jesus had come looking for fruit. He wasn't really concerned about a fig tree other, you know, other than it represented Israel. He's looking for fruit from Israel upon Israel, and he's not finding it. And so uh, that benefits us as Gentiles. We, we benefit. We're grafted into that tree. It's, it's an Israeli tree. It's, the root is Israel, where branches are grafted in. Well, look in Luke chapter 13, verses 6 through 9. An interesting uh, story, a parable here that Jesus tells. He also spoke this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. I mean, doesn't that seem kind of odd? You got a vineyard. Oh, I think I'll plant a fig tree in my vineyard. And so this guy does that. He plants a fig tree there in his vineyard. We know, you know, with the, the vineyard, it's definitely representative of Israel. God says that outright. So he comes. 
seeking fruit on it, and he finds none. And then he said to the keeper of his vineyard, Look, for three years, seems like an odd time frame. <laughs> Look, for three years I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? And he answers and says to him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit, well, but if not, after that you can cut it down. So we got this fig tree planted in the vineyard, which is Israel. Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Uh, the Lord speaking says, And let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. Well, this is the uh, people singing. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it. He cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it, so he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge please between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And now, please let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge. It shall be burned and break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned or dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression for righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. So they weren't bearing the fruit that the Lord designed for them to bear. In Matthew 21, verses 33 through 41, this is where at the end we read he's going to take uh, the kingdom away from you and give it to a nation bearing the fruits of it. It is the story of this vineyard. It's the tenants, parable of the tenants. Uh, in verse 33, it says, Here another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard, and he set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower, and he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now, I'm sure the Jews who were listening at this point, they, they knew Isaiah chapter 5. And so he talks about a certain landowner planting a vineyard and setting a hedge around it. They're going to think, ah, he's talking about it. He says, now when vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Then last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. Uh, Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and plot a vain thing? So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? And they said to him, he'll destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. And this is you know, when Jesus says it's going to be taken from you. So this budding of the fig tree, fig tree right in the, in the vineyard. And the budding of this fig tree, does this represent the remnant of Israel signifying that the kingdom is near. Some other references to the figs and fig tree. Hosea 9 and verse 10, he says, uh, the Lord speaking, he says, I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. 
I saw your fathers as the first fruits on the fig tree in its first season. But they went to Baal Peor and separated themselves to that shame. They became an abomination like the thing they loved. Wild grapes and rotten figs, as in Jeremiah chapter 24. In verse 1, uh, Jeremiah he says, The Lord showed me, and there were two baskets of figs set before the temple of the Lord. They're right there in front of the temple. After Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away captive Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and the princes of Judah with the craftsmen and the smiths from Jerusalem, and had brought them to Babylon. One basket had very good figs, like the figs that are first ripe. And the other basket had very bad figs, which could not be eaten. They were so bad. Rotten figs. And the Lord said to me, what do you see, Jeremiah? This is the kind of question that I like to receive from the Lord. When you can just tell him, I, well, I see, I said figs, the good figs, very good, the bad, very bad, which cannot be eaten, they're so bad, you know. Lord, ask me those kind of questions. Don't ask me, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? <laughs> Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, like these good figs, so will I acknowledge those who are carried away captive from Judah, whom I have sent out of this place for their, for their own good into the land of the Chaldeans. This is during the you know, destruction, the siege and all. For I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not pull them down, and I will plant them and not pluck them up. Then I will give them a heart to know me, that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. This hasn't happened yet, the whole heart part. They've returned to the land. And as the bad figs, which cannot be eaten, they are so bad. Surely, thus says the Lord, so will I give up Zedekiah, the king of Judah, his princes, the residue of Jerusalem, who remain in this land and those who dwell in the land of Egypt. So he's bringing judgment upon those that rejected him. And then Joel chapter 1, verses 6 and 7 says, A nation has come up against my land. This is the Lord speaking. It's his land. Strong and without number. His teeth are like the teeth of a lion, and he has the fangs of a fierce lion. He has laid waste my vine, Israel, and ruined my fig tree, that which I planted in the midst of the vineyard. He has stripped it bare and thrown it away. Its branches are made white. So it's, it's my vine. It's my fig tree. The Lord says this identifies it without a doubt as Israel. So, uh, we're told when you see this stuff happening, it is at the doors. That is the second coming. It is near. In James chapter 5, verses 7 through 9, James writes and tells us, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. So he, Jesus said it's right at the doors. And so here's Jesus standing. He's, he's the judge. He's standing at the door waiting for the Father to give the word. To say, okay, go through the door. It's time.
Well, he goes on to say in verse 30, Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. The gen- this generation, so is which generation is it that will not pass away? I can tell you one thing for sure. It's not speaking of any generation that's in the past. Not the generation and time period that Jesus is speaking to. He's not saying this generation to these people he's talking to. Uh, There are some possibilities. Number one, the generation that sees all these things beginning to come to pass. And some people have interpreted it. And then when you say that, you have to decide from what time. When does the time begin for this generation? Um, Some count from the founding of the nation of Israel in 1948, using the fig tree illustration, it budded, the leaves are coming out, and so they'd say, well, this generation, that's got to be the people that generation saw Israel founded. Uh, And so they would count, you know, you've got to also decide how long is a generation, because in the scriptures you'll find a generation indicated as 40 years sometimes, 70 years, 100 years, 120 years. So you've got to decide which time frame you're going to use and which your starting point is going to be. In 48, you know, you go 40 years and you got 1988. And there were, you know, a guy wrote a book, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Happen in 1988. And then you got to have the seven-year tribulation, so you got to back up seven years. And, and then the rapture, you know, that's 81. But, and it already passed, so you had to have 88, I guess. And then the sequel was 89 reasons why the rapture will happen in 89. And one of the reasons was because it didn't happen in 88. (laughs) Some count from the recapture of Jerusalem in 1967. And they say, well, that's got to be a starting point because, you know, they retook Jerusalem. Jerusalem's going to be trodden down by the Gentiles until the time the Gentiles are fulfilled. Uh, But all of a sudden the Gentiles still have control of the Temple Mount. And you know, the West Bank. And so, you can count from there. Some uh, might count from another significant date and try to count out a generation using whatever number of years they want to want to pick and use. I think trying to count it out is an unwise exercise, steeped in frustration and false hopes. You know, Matthew chapter 24 and verse 44, Jesus says, Therefore you also be ready... For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. He's got to be talking about the rapture there because any believers are going to be expecting him at the end of the tribulation period. They will know. But he says he's coming at an hour when you do not expect. Um, Some versions translated coming at an hour that you think not. And so let's all not think. Stop thinking. This is an insight into the way my mind works, you know, it's kind of, and it's scary. So when everybody doesn't think, then the Lord's going to, of course, uh, it's when you don't think he's coming, is when he's going to show up. The second possibility is that the, and there might be more than I've got here, but the a second possibility is a generation that is alive at the time of the final seven-year covenant with Israel. The last of the 77th determined upon them. They see all these things come to pass, and, and certainly that's true. 
that generation that sees that final covenant sign, it's a seven-year generation. They're going to see it if that was what it indicated. But the phrase seems to refer to a longer period than that and would not mean, it wouldn't mean a lot in the context. You know, that, well, sure, Jesus. I mean, yeah. Uh, there's another possibility that I think is uh, the best, at least of the ones I'm aware of and know at this time. The meaning of the word generation. Uh, the Greek word is genea, and it is defined as that which has been begotten, men of the same stock, a family, or the several ranks of natural descent, the successive members of a genealogy. In other words, it may refer to specific descendants of a person or a line of descent, that is, an ethnic group or a family of people. In this case, it would be the Jewish people. And Jesus is saying this, this people, they're not going to cease to exist until all these things come to pass. In Luke chapter 11, verses 45 through 51, now looking at what, how this word is used, uh, there's a lawyer who approaches Jesus in verse 45. He says to him, Teacher, by saying these things, you reproach us also. They were, he had rebuked the Pharisees. And this lawyer was, hey, that's kind of painting us with the brush too. And so Jesus says, I'm sorry. No, Jesus says, woe to you also, lawyers. <laughs> Forget I said anything. You know? <laughs> For you load men with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and your fathers killed them. In fact, you bear witness that you approve the deeds of your fathers, for they indeed killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore, the wisdom of God also said, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill and persecute. That the blood of all the prophets which was shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the temple, yes, I say to you, it shall be required of this generation. So is Jesus talking about the generation of the people he is speaking to? I don't think it's that group of people in that time frame alone. It would not be required of just the Jews that were listening to Jesus as he says this, but to the Jewish people who rejected the prophets and the Messiah. So many times this word is qualified, this word generation. For example, uh, in Acts 2.40, when Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost, he says, With many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Well, that's, that's a broader term than just a, you know, a group of people in a lineage or something. That's, there's a spiritual component there. So you want to save yourself from this perverse generation, the, the twisted people. Uh, William McDonald says, We believe it means the Jewish race characterized by unbelief and rejection of the Messiah, uh, particularly in this Luke context. The testimony of history is that this generation has not passed away. The nation as a whole has not only survived as a distinct people, but has continued in its deep-seated animosity toward the Lord Jesus. Jesus predicted that the nation and its national characteristic would continue until the second advent. That's when all Israel shall be saved. Now, he's begun to open the eyes of some Jewish people more and more as the 
years have gone by. And so we have Messianic congregations, Messianic Jews, and so forth. So this is a significant statement because God has previously promised to preserve the Jewish people, even in exile, and bring them back to the land, which we see with our own eyes. And he's promised to fulfill the promises made to the fathers that pertain to national Israel. As we, as we see and know, they're back in the land in unbelief in Jesus as the Messiah. We see in these promises of God to Israel a reason for the persistent and consuming hatred of the devil for the people of Israel. If he can completely destroy the Jewish people, God's promises to them will fail. God will be unable to fulfill his promises. I guess he could raise them from the dead. You know, he, that was kind of the thought with, with Isaac and the fulfilling of that promise. But the devil cannot destroy them completely because God has said they're going to be preserved and he's going to preserve them. Nor can he prevail against the church. And we see, again, since 1948, this big tree budding, we see, uh, you know, the the nations of the world continually condemning Israel. I mean, the, the uh, number of UN resolutions that have been made against Israel compared to all the rest of the world is just staggering. You know, I, I couldn't find any specific numbers for the overall time, time frame. Uh, in 2020, is, Israel was condemned 17 times at the UN and six times for the whole rest of the world. So the rest of the world is doing great compared to those was Israel. And then in 2021, it was 14 times condemning Israel compared to four for the rest of the world. Yeah. And this has been the case, you know, since their founding. So, you know, we get that, that understanding that, hey, this is why anti-Semitism continues and, and goes on more and more and more. And so then Jesus ends this uh, passage here with, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. It's a statement which many would find the height of arrogance at the time. Now, who is this guy saying, Heaven and earth is going to pass away, but his words will be preserved forever. Many probably still do consider it the height of arrogancy, I suppose. But since it has been shown to be true, it must change the opinion of who this man is. How in the world could he bring this about? He wrote no books, that is, with his own bodily hand. He recorded no sermons. He had no scribes taking dictation. Okay, Peter, be sure to get this down. You know, this God be preserved forever. Yet his words are known throughout the world and throughout history. Heaven and earth will pass away by God's design, replaced by new heavens and a new earth, but his words will remain forever. And everything he said will be established and will come to pass. His words are more reliable than your eyes, your ears, your experience, or your understanding. In Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, uh, we're exhorted to trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding, in all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. So how's Jesus going to pull this off? 
In John chapter 14, speaking to his apostles, verses 25 and 26, he says, These things I have spoken to you while being present with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. So the Holy Spirit is going to bring to their remembrance all the things that Jesus said. They're going to write them down, called the New Testament, and they're going to be preserved by God throughout the ages, forever. His words will never pass away. And none of his words will fall to the ground or be unfulfilled. In Second Peter chapter 1, Peter explains this to us also. In verse 15, he says, Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So Peter's saying this, you know, they were there on the Mount of Transfiguration and they heard God the Father's voice speaking to them about Jesus. And it says in verse 19, And so we have the prophetic word confirmed. And uh, this is New King James. I prefer uh, the alternate possible translation. We have a more sure word of prophecy. Because what Peter is indicating here, what he's saying is more sure than that voice that I heard on the mountain is the words that we have that God has given us and recorded for us. And so we have a more sure word of prophecy which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation and when in this context, when he says prophecy of Scripture, he's talking about uh, any Scripture, not just those who relate to prophecy concerning the future. But, you know, when uh, the Word of God is given, it's prophecy. It's God speaking. So no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man. It's what God intends it to say, not what we might um, want it to say or, or you know, there are people who twist it to get, to get it to say what they want. That's a private interpretation. The pro- prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Now, this word here is translated carried along in some places. They were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And one place in which it's used is uh, when uh, Paul was going to Rome and they got caught up in that storm. Uh, and they were driven by the wind, or the ship was being carried along by the wind, and they did not have any control over the ship. In the same way, uh, holy men of God, they spoke, they recorded as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, carried along by His Spirit. And so we get His words, which will by no means pass away. What an amazing prophecy that statement is by Jesus in itself. So we're going to stop there. We'll, you know, next thing Jesus says of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So we'll, Lord willing, we'll pick up there uh, next week.